there were no plans to leave. Orly Minazad was born in Iran after the Islamic Revolution swept the Shah from power. Almost overnight, it seemed, the country had changed. My dad thought it was, things were going to get better, but, you know, the revolution ended, and then it was the Iraq-Iran war. You just, you just didn't know when you were allowed to leave. It was just, you were packed, and you were just waiting. One day I was at school, and they called me to the principal's office, and my mom came in and said, we're leaving. So, you know, I came home, I said goodbye to my nanny and my grandmother, and we just left, and that was it. By the time Orly was eight, she and her family were living in Los Angeles, home to the largest Iranian community outside Iran, and the home of many Iranian Jews, including Orly's family. And I've been here ever since. Before we hear the rest of Orly's story, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. Martine and I are both professors of religious studies here at the University of Virginia. And this is Sacred and Profane, our program exploring how religions shape the world around us in unexpected ways and how, in turn, we shape religions. Orly grew up, along with her brothers and sisters, in L.A. These days, she's a freelance writer, and a lot of what she writes about is the city's thriving Iranian-American community. Which is how she found herself looking at an ancient piece of clay that came to L.A.'s Getty Museum back in 2013. You know, it's, it's funny, the way they present it with the lighting and in a, this glass case is very, very melodramatic. I mean, and the actual artifact is not... Like it's it's not a beautiful you know piece of art. It's just art because of what it stands for, you know, because of the context of it. If you didn't know what this lump of clay was, this artifact, it's not very impressive visually. Orly calls it the Keith Richards of the ancient world. Like him, it's somewhat ravaged by time, but still vital. People were drawn to this particular object not because of what it looked like but because of who wrote it and what it symbolizes. I think what was more interesting for me was other people watching it and looking at it and, and explaining to their children, me explaining it to my nieces and nephews. It's written in the name of Cyrus the Great, a conqueror whose ancient empire began in what is now Iran and spread across the Middle East. You could look at this clay cylinder, this cuneiform Keith Richards, as the other side of one of the most well-known stories of the Hebrew Bible. This cylinder is an edict issued after Cyrus captured Babylon. It allowed conquered peoples who had been brought to the city over many years to return home. In the Bible, Cyrus's edict is seen as a chance for the Jews to return to their homeland and to rebuild their temple after decades of exile in Babylon. And, as the Bible tells it, that's not random good luck. It's God working through Cyrus. You can hear this in the prophet Isaiah's description of Cyrus and his victory. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes. 
I have aroused Cyrus in righteousness, and I will make all his paths straight. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Many, like Isaiah, have seen Cyrus's edict as a divine command and as an invitation to return to their homelands. But that's not the only interpretation. For some, it's been a sign of religious tolerance, a ruler giving his people permission to freely worship their own gods in their own lands. It's even been called the first declaration of human rights. Cyrus, king of kings, champion long before Magna Carta of human rights and liberties. And it has a long history of popping up in politics around the world. I want to tell you that the Jewish people have a long time. So we remember the proclamation of the great king, Cyrus the Great, Persian king. And we remember how a few weeks ago, President Donald J. Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. For Orly, Cyrus's edict is proof of Iran's long history of religious tolerance and diversity, a tradition that laid the cornerstone for modern democracies like the United States. I think immigrants are just constantly trying to justify their existence in a new country. For Iranians in LA, it's come to mean that here's this 2,500 years ago, we, we, the Iranians, had a ruler who was way more tolerant than most rulers are now, even in our own country. You know, even in our own American political climate. And this was a confirmation that, you know, we, we can also belong here. I mean, it still has lessons to teach. Today on the show, we'll explore some of the many ways people have interpreted Cyrus's decision to send conquered peoples home. As divine intervention, as pragmatic propaganda, as a symbol of human rights and religious freedom. We'll try to understand why he may have been motivated to write the decree in the first place. And more importantly, we'll think about why and how his decree has remained meaningful to us millennia later. Why has the decree of an ancient monarch been held up as an example of modern democratic ideals? And how much do Cyrus's original intentions matter? But before we can appreciate what Cyrus's decree might mean to us today, we have to at least try to understand what Cyrus intended 2,500 years ago. Let's go back to the account of Cyrus's edict that's best known today, the Hebrew Bible. Cyrus actually appears in the Bible multiple times. This is from the book of Ezra. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom, and also in a written edict declared, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Ezra reflects how some Jewish authors understood Cyrus. Like the prophet Isaiah, Ezra believed that even though Cyrus was a foreigner who worshipped different gods, he was still an instrument of their god, an instrument who delivered God's chosen people back to the homeland. 
But the text doesn't tell us much about who Cyrus was or what his own intentions may have been. Well, what, what do we know about him in general? That he was a, he was a king of a small uh, region in what's now western Iran? That's biblical scholar Mark Hamilton. He did grow an empire to be the largest the world had ever seen. And that extended from what is modern Greece all the way over to what is modern India and south uh, to the oceans and the seas. And this is biblical scholar Kristen Swenson. Mark and Kristen both study the ancient Near East, and they'll be helping us to tell the story today. As Kristen said, by the time Cyrus died, his empire was the largest that had ever existed at the time. But despite that, there's lots we don't know about Cyrus's life. We don't know very much about his parents or his early life or what his own religious beliefs may have been. Uh, what we do know is that his his actions broke with policies of empires that had gone before him. And we know that he conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. While he would go on to conquer much of the Middle East, Babylon was in many ways the centerpiece of Cyrus's empire. It's located in modern-day Iraq, so geographically, it was right at the heart of things. And it was a prize. One of the oldest, largest, and richest cities in the world, long before Cyrus came to town. Babylon had become powerful and wealthy by conquering its neighbors, particularly under an earlier king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a very successful conqueror. When he defeated a peoples, and he did that all over the known world, he took their best and brightest with him back to Babylon and put them to work for Babylonia. Those conquered peoples, brought there against their will, helped to build the palaces, temples, and gardens that made Babylon a wonder of the world. But by the time Cyrus arrived, there was tension building in the city as well. So it was a really cosmopolitan court, but you can imagine that not all the Babylonians were thrilled with seeing foreigners assume positions that were well-respected. as these artisans, as scribes, as judges. I mean, there were some uh, very high positions occupied by people who had come from defeated countries. All of this was making Babylon less Babylonian. So it seems that in the Babylonia of that moment, before Cyrus conquers the empire, the population itself was divided. Different people have different ideas about how their country should go forward. There were those who were amenable to foreigners, that there were some people who felt very strongly that Babylonia should be composed of blood Babylonians, people who were born and bred there. 
So you could say Cyrus is really facing quite a dilemma. On the one hand, he's gaining control of this incredibly wealthy, sophisticated city. On the other hand, it seems that the city is ready to fracture into pieces. So what does he do? What's his move? Well, not long after he enters the city, he creates that cylinder-shaped artifact that we've been talking about, the one that Orly saw in L.A. Inscribed on it is his edict, written in the language that would have been spoken by native Babylonians at the time. And you could hear Cyrus's words as a kind of promise of a new day for a divided Babylon. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four quarters. When I entered Babylon peacefully, I took up my lordly abode in the royal palace amidst rejoicing and happiness. Marduk, the great lord, rejoiced over my good deeds. By his exalted word, all the kings who sit upon thrones throughout the world, from the upper sea to the lower sea, brought their heavy tribute before me, and in Babylon they kissed my feet. He says that his, his actions are motivated by the gods. He calls it kind of liberating them. I sent the gods back to their palaces, to the cities of Ashur and Susa, Akkad, the land of Eshnuna, the city of Zamban, the city of Marturu, Dare, as far as the border of the land of Kutu, whose shrines had become dilapidated and made permanent sanctuaries for them. I collected together all of their people and returned them to their settlements. I returned the gods unharmed into sanctuaries that made them happy. May all the gods I return to their sanctuaries ask a long life for me and mention my good deeds. I see a few differences from the story in the Bible. For one, Cyrus is really focusing on Babylon and their chief god, Marduk. Uh, But at the same time, there are things that have the same sort of ring to it. Cyrus is claiming divine inspiration, saying that he's doing what Marduk and these other gods want. And he is sending both gods and people back to their homelands. I can definitely see how you can read this as a text of religious tolerance, or perhaps cultural tolerance. Cyrus is saying, hey, go, do what makes your gods happy. And it's not just the state turning a blind eye to these other religions. Cyrus is promising to actively support them all and to rebuild their temples. Yeah, exactly. And and the fact that we do have these similar but very different stories is interesting. It shows how various people very early on made it their own. And the Cyrus Cylinder very well may have been motivated by a certain religious tolerance toward conquered peoples and perhaps even to their gods. But I think we can also look at this as a savvy political decision. He allowed, so to speak, a number of foreigners to return to their native lands who had been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that makes you popular in a couple of ways. One, among the foreigners who might want to go back. But the other is among the native Babylonians who would have been happy to see good riddance to those people who came wandering in that weren't from here originally. So let's look at this from another angle. There's also the question, did conquered peoples in Babylon actually want to go home? The accounts of Cyrus's decree in the Bible make it sound like joyous liberation. 
But we know that some of the Jews had been in Babylon for decades. And we know from written records that many had flourished there. They wrote contracts. They owned businesses. They gave their children Babylonian names. They had put roots down in the city. Would this decree have felt like an invitation to go home or an edict of expulsion? I think it would have felt like that to a lot of people. And remember, we're talking about 40 years here, a generation between the conquest and their return. And so a lot of people who were urged to return to their native land actually may have felt more Babylonian than anything. We read that Cyrus provided all this support, which sounds so nice, but he may have been bribing them also to get go back. I promise you I'll give you some stuff and help you get your feet on the ground. Um, but please, do go. This came up when I was speaking with Orly about her own family. As someone who's been living here for a long time, if there were a similar decree, the U.S. and Iran worked out a way that you could go home, would you take it? I think I would visit. I think my mom and my aunts and uncles would just run, <laughs> you know, the first flight back, you know. I, I don't think they ever got used to living here. So for me, it would be a little bit more difficult. You know, I've been here since I was eight years old. My life is here. It would be very difficult for me. Whatever your conclusions about Cyrus's motivations, the edict shows how people and their governments have been wrestling with the same question for thousands of years. At what point is a command to return home a liberation? And at what point is it another form of exile? Who is an insider? Who is an outsider? You know, human migration is a phenomenon that goes back as far as we know anything about human beings. It goes back as long as we have text. It must go back well before writing. People think about how, to, how we're going to live together. So I think one thing the cylinder and the text like it might say to us is the state does have a responsibility to think about the well-being of human beings that it comes into contact with. And uh, that should be its first priority. So we've got this ancient edict whose original intention is kind of a mystery in a lot of ways. We've got people like Orly Minazad in Los Angeles who see it as a real symbol of the best of their culture and the best of human impulses. How should we look at it? Yeah, I'm, I'm wrestling with that too. And so I decided to go look at the object itself or more accurately, a replica of the original that the Shah of Iran gifted to the United Nations back in the 1970s. Do you know where the Cypress cylinder is? Cyrus. Cyrus cylinder. It's right. Hi. I'm not sure where I just Okay. It's tucked a bit out of the way, but eventually we found it near the Security Council chambers. Oh my gosh, there it is. It's so tiny. It's like a, it's like a football. That's amazing. I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, mighty king. So what did you feel like looking at it? Did it change anything for you? So Curtis, visually just seeing it was like this reminder from ages past of how we've been trying to work out the relationship between nations and dispossessed people for centuries, right? It's, it's an artifact 
of that long-standing struggle. And the fact that it's at the UN, which deals with those issues every day, was a potent reminder of how we haven't figured this out. The other thing I was really struck by is the bombast of the translation, and it maybe even mistranslates the cylinder to make it a more sweeping edict than it actually was because it was appealing, as you say, to our better impulses. We should all be free. We should all be liberated. We should all be able to go home. So translations matter. A lot hinges on them, and and they should be carefully done. Otherwise, we're uh, rewriting history or miswriting history. On the other hand, this translation, if it is a mistranslation, is aspirational in ways that that are probably very important for people, you know, racing by it at the UN if they ever stop to look at it. It is a work of propaganda that it celebrates some of what could be the best in us. The acceptance of difference, the recognition that religion may be beyond the ken of any one group or another, and the grace to let people be how and where they are. It really gets at the heart of what we do as scholars of texts that are hundreds or thousands of years old. How much can you really know about an author's intentions when you have just a few paragraphs of very formal writing? At a certain point, do we just have to accept we can never know for sure and make our best argument? You know, when we when we talk about in ancient times, we have fragments. There are many, many things we don't know. And we have these precious fragments from which we can find things out. Or a friend of mine likes to say we have we're looking through a little pinhole <laughs> into into a, a beautiful garden, but all we have is that little pinhole's perspective. You asked first about what we do know about Cyrus. One of the things we know is that he established his capital at Pasargadae. Archaeologists have discovered no defenses, but copious gardens, formal gardens, that all face kind of out, very open and airy. And so it appears that he did have intention of ruling in a way that didn't anticipate hostility. I do think that he understood, whether it was just shrewd political maneuvering or a kind of humanitarian ethos, or maybe those are don't have to be separate, <laughs> saw the respectful treatment of the people he had conquered, giving them a great deal of liberty as the way to move forward peacefully and um, productively. So yeah, so the first time it was like, this is all very beautiful and he's amazing and gracious and, you know, all those good things. And then I read it a little bit more closely. Not that he wasn't, not that he didn't, you know, free everybody, but he was also a ruler who took over, you know, a lot of land. So it's not like he was this super meek, you know, um, idealistic person. And this is this is where I questioned his intentions. I'm like, was he trying to get rid of people? Is that 
what he, because he really pushed for them to go back home. It really doesn't matter to me. It doesn't because, I mean, at the end of the day, you just want to feel safe and you want to feel home wherever you're living. And if it is propaganda, I guess to use it for good instead of evil, it's fine with me. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program and communications manager is Ashley Duffalo. Our intern is Laura Logan. Today's guests are Mark Hamilton, Orly Minazad, and Kristen Swenson. Additional research for this episode came from Ashley Tate. Our readers were Megan Hartman, David Vanderhoeft, Rosalind Tordesillas, and Rico Galliano. Music in the episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. For more on our work, head to religionlab.virginia.edu or follow us on Twitter at The Religion Lab. And if you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us on the podcatcher of your choice. It really makes a difference for shows like ours that are just starting out. <laughs>